I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. And let me sincerely say it's really important and it's really good that you would have the Word open and that it, you would be looking by bread alone. We live by every word that comes to us in Scripture, what God has revealed to us in the Bible. This is active and this is living. So both, both now and throughout the entirety of your life, uh, throughout the week, uh, I hope you're feasting on the Word of God. Uh, more, more important than just showing up on a Sunday morning or listening to a sermon on a podcast uh, is your daily, your daily dose of, of God's Word. And I hope that you would, if, you, if you're not accessing it regularly, that you'd go through withdrawals. I hope that the Spirit would provoke you to really crave it and, and feel like, I need the Word. So with that in mind, let me invite you to stand as I read uh, verses 15 through 20 of Colossians chapter 1 for us. And again, put your full attention on this. This is God speaking to us through his word. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He, that's referencing Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Y'all can have a seat. I invite you to pray with me. God, thank you for speaking to us. And as we reflect on what you just said in Colossians 1, thank you for showing us who you are. Thank you for showing us in the most full and embodied way what the radiance of your glory looks like, what the image of the invisible God looks like. Uh, thank you for showing us the wisdom of God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The fact that you're showing us who you are in Jesus, we admit that it does not look the way we want it to look. Jesus' view of money and time management and how we value the various uh, commodities and relationships that we have in this world, it's very different than what we would prescribe for, or, uh, prescribe for ourselves. And so we pray that you would increase our faith, cause us to crave more and more what Jesus shows us to be the wisdom and the will of God, and uh, help us to follow that path, the path of Jesus as our delight, as the joy set before us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. On January 9th of 2007, in San Francisco, California, a balding with a turtleneck tucked into the dad jeans and New Balance sneakers changed the world forever. This man had created a device, and it's not a stretch, what I'm about to say, a device that everyone in the world would surrender their lives to. They'd give their lives to this device. They'd put their full confidence and trust in this device. It would, 
would dominate them. Even rulers, even world leaders like Donald Trump and Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, they would hold this device in their hands just like you, just like me, carry it around with them at all times. It, it would, it, they would never be without it. This device would become preeminent in everything. And it, and it doesn't take much to see its preeminence. You can, you can walk around the city of Charlotte, and, and people are, are always staring at this, this device. As they're walking, as they're crossing busy roads, they're still just looking, enamored, totally transfixed on this device. People driving are always looking at this device. Even though that's technically illegal, we still do it. We, we try to drive and look at the same time. It's always, it's always our focus. Uh, in a living room, in someone's house, you could walk in, you could find six or seven people sitting around, not talking to each other, but staring totally, totally absorbed in their devices. You could walk into an arena full of people, thousands of people, and they're all looking at this, this little device and taking selfies with it and just always looking at it. Everything happens through it. Everything happens through it. Your, your food, you order your food through it. You manage your money with it. You get your news from it. You communicate with other humans with it. You listen to your music on this device. You, you navigate the world. There's, there's these navigation GPS things on it where they give you little blue lines when you drive around. That's how you know where you're going. You check the weather with it. Everything from it and through it and for it. All things hold together. And whether people realized it or not, back in 2007 when that balding 52-year-old man wearing dad jeans with the turtleneck tucked in and the dorky New Balance sneakers, whether they knew it or not, when he got up there and presented this device for the first time to the world, people were witnessing world-changing greatness, you could say. And it's the same thing that Paul and Timothy are talking about here. Whether you know it or not, whether you're fully convinced or whether you believe it or not, when, when you look at Jesus of Nazareth, this very weird, eccentric rabbi, this, this sort of vagabond preacher man from 2,000 years ago, when you read about him in the Gospels and you imagine what is being emphasized to you in the, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul and Timothy are saying, you are witnessing greatness, believe it or not. The image and the fullness of greatness is, is embodied and fully manifest in the, the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what they say in verse 15. Paul and Timothy write, Jesus is the image of of the invisible God. In verse 19, they say, in Jesus, all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Not part of who God is, but all the fullness. It's an extremely superlative way to put it. All the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus of Nazareth. And this is consistent with what other authors of scripture say, other, other writers of the New Testament, like Hebrews 1, for example, it says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. So just like in 2007 when people looked at Steve Jobs, this dorky, balding, 52-year-old man with a turtleneck, they were looking at a man who changed the world. So when you look at Jesus of Nazareth, this nomadic rabbi who's always running away from the, the current fashions in the culture, the, the popularity contest. He's always running away from crowds when he does miracles, really impressive stuff. He, tell, he tells people, don't tell anybody I did that. He's not trying to create a, a big popular movement. He's, he's always up on mountains praying. 
He's always huddled around a campfire on the beach eating broiled fish for breakfast with his disciples. He's always preferring to be in people's living rooms like his friends Lazarus and Martha and Mary in this little town called Bethany. He is not the picture of greatness we would have come up with. But God says that is true greatness. This nomadic, eccentric rabbi Jesus. You're looking at God when you look at that man, Jesus of Nazareth. And let me just pause and point out a very, a very obvious fact. All of you want to see God. It's, it's inescapable. Um, even if you don't profess to believe in God, even if you're uh, an, an antagonist of God, even if you say, I don't like God. I, I know enough about him to know I don't like him. I know his ways are not my ways. I don't prefer the things that he, he, he emphasizes in the Bible. Even if you hate God, you still want to see him. If for no other reason, just the spectacle. Like you're curious. You can't not be. He made you. He sustained you. He's God. So you're all dying to know, who is this God? What does he look like? No matter who you are, you want to see God. And if you want to see God, then you have to read the Gospels. You have to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because when, when you watch Jesus, you're seeing God. So let's look at a couple of examples. Of course, there are many, many examples. Let's just limit ourselves to a, a couple. And I'll, I'll just take a couple of scenes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4 and 5. In Luke chapter 4, what do we see? If you're looking at Jesus, you're seeing God. So what do we see about God in Luke chapter 4? How does he present himself to us? Well, what you'll see in Luke chapter 4 is an emaciated 30-year-old man from Nazareth. The fact that he's from Nazareth is already kind of ruffling your feathers because Nazareth is not a trendy place to be from. It's a place where nothing really good ever comes from there. And then I mentioned he's emaciated because he's been out in the wilderness fasting, starving himself for 40 days. And he shows up at this religious gathering, much like this one that, that we're at right now. He shows up at this place called the synagogue where people show up to worship God. And this emaciated 30-year-old man from Nazareth, he stands up like I am right now, and he, he opens up the Bible, and he reads a passage from the prophet Isaiah. This passage talks about God, how God is going to be with us. Just reading this particular portion of Isaiah's prophecy, he, without nuance, without any further explanation, simply says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And people say, no, no way. This, this cannot be true. You, this, this weird rabbi from Nazareth who looks kind of rough because he's just getting back from the wilderness and fasting, there's no way this guy, this pathetic Unsay, there's no way you could be God. Look at you. You can't be him. We would expect something far more impressive, far more dazzling. But Jesus says, well, whether you like it or not, I'm, I'm God. I'm the radiance of God. I'm the full, I'm the full manifestation of who God is. I'm the image of the invisible God. You go to the very next chapter, Luke chapter 5. Jesus is having a conversation with a paralyzed man. And essentially, Jesus says to this paralyzed man, I forgive you infinitely, eternally, even your debts against other people, right? The ways you've sinned against other people. I forgive you for all of it in the most absolute, 
full, infinite, and eternal kind of way. And there are some religious folks there, like kids who went to Christian school and some pastors who've been to seminary. And, you know, this raises some eyebrows. And they say, um, who do you think you are? You, <laughs> you can't forgive this guy his sins unless, unless you're God. I mean, the, the way you're forgiving him, only God could do that. And Jesus, without batting an eye, says, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you would have to be God to do what I just said that I'm, I'm doing for this guy. Absolutely, you'd have to be God, and I am. See, Jesus is a very matter-of-fact. He's very unapologetic. He's very confident about him being God. C.S. Lewis has this great quote. I know many of you have probably heard this quote, read this quote. It's one of my favorites. He says, I want to try to prevent people from saying the very foolish thing that people often try to say about Jesus. People will try to say, I'm ready to acknowledge that Jesus was a historical, significant figure. Uh, he was a good moral teacher, but I don't accept the fact that he's God. I don't accept his claim to be God. And Lewis points out, that's the one thing that you cannot say about Jesus. Because a man who is merely a man, even a, a moral teacher, a historical figure, but who said the sort of things that Jesus said would at best be a lunatic. And at worst, he'd be demonic or he'd be a liar. He'd be a lunatic on the same level of a man who says, I'm a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. And so you have to make your choice. You can either look at him and say he's a madman, which you might feel some pity for him in that case, but you wouldn't venerate him as, as a good moral teacher, or you need to, to shut him up and say he's a liar and, and spit at him and ridicule him for lying, or you can fall at his feet. You can bow the knee to him and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about him being a good human teacher. He has not left that option open to us, and he did not intend to. Jesus says, I'm God, unapologetically, matter-of-factly, at every moment in the Gospels. And we need to wrestle with the fact that he does not look like the picture of God that we had in mind. Now, before we leave this point about Jesus being God, the fullness of God, the radiance of his claims, what he who he professed to be, we want to look at his priorities. We want to kind of zoom in and, and take notice of his, his choices in life. Because not just his claims, but his choices, his style of life, that's very, very significant. So we just pick up where we left off, Luke chapter 5. Jesus has just forgiven this paralyzed man of his sins. So in other words, again, he's claiming to be God. And so if he's God... You're thinking, well, I bet he's going to start dealing with sins. I mean, that's what he talked to the paralyzed man about. I mean, at the risk of being very offensive and insensitive, he tells this man who's been through a lot of hard stuff, he's paralyzed, hey, we need to start with the fact that you're a sinner. So that's going to be the thing he really camps out on, right? Because God is holy and God is, is very angry about sin. And so he's going, to, he's going to start dealing with sinners, I bet that's going to be his priority. He's going to deal with sinners. And of course, if he's dealing with sinners, he's going to start with the worst sinners, which we all know are tax collectors, right? Even nowadays, we hate 
tax collectors. Our country was founded on hating taxes. Okay, So that's true nowadays, but it was even more true back in Jesus' day because anyone in the Jewish community who worked as a tax collector was viewed as a sellout. They, they had betrayed the Jewish nation, and they were working for the, the enemy, the worse. And if Jesus heard you say that, if he heard you uh, say, yeah, I bet God's going to start with the worst of the worst. He's going to start with the sinful, really sinful people. Jesus would say, well, you're not entirely wrong. You're on the right track. Right after Jesus talks to that paralyzed guy about his sins and forgives him, the very next thing he does is he walks up to this tax collector named Levi, who's working in that moment in his tax collector's booth. And so you're watching Jesus and you think, oh, I bet he's going to blast this guy. The full weight of God's wrath is going to fall on this Levi character because he's a tax collector. But watch. Watch what the radiance of God, the image of the invisible God, the fullness of God, pleased to dwell in Jesus. Watch. Look at what happens. Jesus walks up to this villainous tax collector and he says to Levi, hey, man, what you doing later? You want to hang out? I'm paraphrasing, but that's the gist. Want to hang out? We should get all your friends together, in fact. Let, let, let's just hang out as a group. Like, not just you and me, but let's get all of your sleazy, corrupt friends together, and we'll have a big party. In fact, Levi, you host it. You host the party. You know, using the monies that you have stolen from the Jewish people to pay your mortgage and to buy the nicest wines and, and foods. Let's go hang out at your house where there's drunkenness and gluttony clearly occurring, let's go hang out at your house. Now that's confusing. A lot of you, if you're really imagining this, you're thinking, that's not what I had expected. I didn't expect God to come into this world and walk up to the worst, most villainous, sinful kind of people and say, hey, you want to be friends? You want to hang out? Strange. And you know, when we come... When we come to things in scripture that we don't like or we don't understand, um, typically we try to, to interpret it in a way that makes more sense to us. It's more comfortable for us. So maybe we look at this and at first it seems strange and then we think, oh, I, I, get, it. I get it. I bet I know what's going to happen. Um, I bet Jesus is pulling a Samson. You know how Samson went to a big Philistine party, but he wasn't there to be friendly. He was there to kill him. Right? He got them all together. It was like fish in a barrel. Right? He didn't just hang out with Delilah. He got all of the Philistines together so that he could condemn them. I bet that's what Jesus is doing. He's a shrewd guy. But he's getting all the tax collectors and prostitutes together so that he can just get them all in one spot and then just pour out God's wrath. I bet that's what he's going to do. All right, we'll just keep watching. What does, the, what does the radiance of the glory of God do? The image of the invisible God. Right? How is God's righteousness and holiness most emphatically manifest in Jesus? Okay, well, he goes to Levi's house and he eats and drinks with them. And in this moment, that's it. That's all he does. Where's the wrath? Where's the, the fire and brimstone sermon? Where is it? Now, to be clear, Jesus doesn't endorse and celebrate or, or commend all the ways that Levi's friends are abusing alcohol or food or, or living corrupt lives. We know from the story of Zacchaeus, uh, Jesus is not just going to let Zacchaeus keep stealing from people. But we also know that it, what is most emphasized is that Jesus really does love these people. 
We know that the image of the invisible God, the fullness of God, the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature, namely Jesus, he really does enjoy these really sinful people, like tax collectors and prostitutes. When you look at Jesus, again, you're looking at the embodiment and the most extensive manifestation of him in whom, and I'm just going to take statements from this passage, Colossians 1, the one in whom all things were created, the one to whom every knee will bow, including world leaders like Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden and Xi Jinping, all of them. All things have been created through him and for him, and in him all things hold together. And you really have to grasp this. All of those superlative, lofty statements of eccentric rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, who prioritizes things in ways that none of us prioritize things. That's where we see greatness. In Jesus, the friend of tax collectors. And then Paul and Timothy go on to say, oh, and that's not all. That's not even the best part. So, so all these statements uh, about how all things hold together, all things have been created through him and for him. Uh, he's the one to whom every knee will bow. I mean, this is like a fireworks show, right? You go to a fireworks show, it's dazzling. It's huge, impressive lights in the sky. But if you've ever been to a fireworks show, you know that as dazzling as any firework has been in the show, you know that there's this thing at the end called the finale. And that's what Paul and Timothy are, are leading up to here. They, they give all, all these superlative lofty statements and we're dazzled. We're talking about the one who created all things. Everything's for him and, and through him and it, it's all the glory is to him. And then they say, oh, but that's not even the best part. Look at verse 18. They say, and here, here's the best part. Here's the most dazzling thing about him. He's the head of the church. <laughs> and you're thinking, is that, is that supposed to be a joke? Um, this is the one who has power over all world leaders. Like, this is the one who has universal power, like, upholds the universe. And, and Paul and Timothy are emphasizing, in the midst of all these other impressive things, that what is really impressive is that he's the head of the church. Y'all, the church is, is not an impressive, it's not an impressive organization. <laughs> According to Jesus, the church, well, that consists of these tax collector types. Um, not winners, losers, right? Not, not healthy, impressive, decent people, but, but sick people who need help. They're desperate. Um, this is not the super elite, popular crowd. Like you look at Jesus' discipleship team. These are uneducated blue-collar workers, former zealots and tax collectors, these are not the, the bougie people. These are the losers. And Paul and Timothy are making a big deal about the fact that Jesus is the head of that group. I have this buddy. Um, he owns multiple, not just one, but multiple successful businesses. Uh, makes a lot of money. A very, very... Uh, productive guy, very competent guy, um, and, and, you know, has these businesses that he could point to to show you, you know, how it's all worked out for him, how fruitful it's been. And we'd look at those businesses and we'd say, man, that's, that's great. That is so great. And we might even envy it. We might say, man, I wish I had greatness like that. 
I will also tell you that this, this friend of mine, he is the chairman of the board of the Simmons YMCA. And if any of y'all know anything about the Simmons, it's like the most rundown, um, kind of even hard to find. It's like not on a main road. It's kind of, you know, back in, in this area where no, nobody really goes. Um, it's, it's over 50 years old, like lots of stuff breaking down. It's a great place. Uh, the staff is wonderful, but just curb appeal's not high. It doesn't look super impressive. So, so it'd be like if I said, I got this friend and he owns these businesses and you can go to those businesses and see how they're thriving and making all kinds of money. And then I said, oh, but the best part is he's also the head of this organization called the Simmons YMCA. And you'd say, okay, is that, why do you even mention that? <laughs> That's not, that, sh that shouldn't even come up in a conversation if we're talking about greatness. Um, you know, it doesn't compare. But that's what Paul and Timothy are emphasizing here. They're saying, Jesus, the, the upholder of the universe, the creator of the world, the one to whom all knees will bow, he is most zealous in terms of his commitment to, to this group of people called the church, which is a group of shabby, sinful people who are desperate for help. And as you press into this, this statement uh, this concept of Jesus being the head of the church, you discover something very, very scandalous. You, you come to realize that head of the church doesn't just mean like Jesus is the chairman of the board. Like, you know, he, he, he oversees a committee for a, for a 501c nonprofit, right? Which, which might be commendable. That's really nice of him. Jesus says, oh no, it goes way deeper than that. When I say I'm the head of the church, what I mean is it's, it's my body, so, so if we took your head off your body right now, your head can't live, your body can't live. He says, I've united myself uh, irrevocably. I've, I've created a unity between myself and these shabby, sinful, desperate people. When he says I'm the head of the church, he means this is my wife. I'm not just the chairman of the board of a nonprofit. This is, this is my wife. These are my cherished, treasured people. That's what I mean when I say I'm the head of the church. And of course, that begs the question, if these people are so sinful, if these people are so shabby and depraved, how in the world can God, the glorious God, the holy God, how can he be anywhere near these people, let alone the husband of such people? And I'm glad you asked that question because that's really the most impressive thing that Paul and Timothy reference in, in this paragraph. True greatness is most fully realized and manifest in the full reconciliation that has to happen in order for Jesus to be the head of this body and to be the husband of this wife. Um, it, it bears mentioning, when you, when you hear that expression, witnessing greatness, um, you need to just pause and, and reflect on, like, what are your default assumptions? Um, you know, when, when do you feel like, wow, this is great, I am witnessing greatness, and, and you don't even have to try, it's just, it's reflex. Sometimes um, I'll drive around Charlotte, and I'll see a house, like a mansion, and I'll just be like, that is impressive. Like, I can't not think, that is great. That, that, that is the picture. That is the icon of greatness, like a huge mansion. Or maybe events that draw large numbers of people. 
like my wife took me to see Nate Bergazzi last Sunday for Christmas. That was my Christmas present. And um, we walked into this arena, Spectrum Arena, and it's like, I can't believe a guy with a handheld mic just walks around a stage telling us funny stuff. And thousands of people. I mean, this arena was full. He sold it out. And I think, that's impressive. I mean, if we could raise the roof on this thing and make seating for, I don't know, 30,000 people, I'd feel like a bigger deal. I'd feel impressed with myself if you guys were all listening to me. Um, you know, large crowds. Yeah, thank you. I love you guys too. Until you stop loving me and then, no. Right? Right? Because like, we want to be liked. Like, we want to be popular. That's impressive. And, and, and so often we, we conflate these ideas. Like, we know God's at work. Wow, because look at, look at all the money and look at all the people. Or maybe it's like achievements, um, some big athletic achievement, like you hold a record in some certain sport or event. Uh, or I just, I just read this book about chess, and this, this character in the book was like a phenomenal chess player, went, went to these international chess competitions, and people, she, she's great. You're witnessing greatness. And all those things can be really good. Certainly they're, at a minimum, good gifts from God. Um, it can be. They could even be great, but what's the greatest? What's, what's the fullest, most final, it is finished picture of greatness? And Jesus would say, it's the work of full reconciliation. It's, it's the price I paid for my wife. That's the best picture of greatness. Uh, in fact, Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth says, um, we resolve to know nothing other than Christ and him crucified. Think about that. Paul knows a bunch of stuff. How audacious. How, how, how superlative he puts it. He says, we resolve to know nothing other than just the crucifixion, the blood of Jesus. And if you wanted, if you wanted to be mean to Paul or, you know, push back on him, you could say, oh, so you resolve to know nothing other than that? You don't, you don't know that two plus two is four? You don't know all of these other cool theological details that clearly you know? Well, Paul's making a very, a very emphatic point. He's saying... The most impressive thing, the thing that we fixate on is the crucifixion of Jesus because that's where full reconciliation with God was achieved. When Jesus died on the cross, there was this nearby temple in Jerusalem and there was this huge, thick veil that, that hung in the temple separating the holiest of holies where the presence of God dwelt and the rest of the people in the community. And that, that veil just magically all of a sudden ripped in half separated, uh, the boundary of separation goes away. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. There's this really crazy ancient story about an imperial head of state. Uh, his name's Joe. His name's Joseph. You can call him Joe or Joey. He wouldn't take offense. And he was super impressive. Uh, if you know anything about Joe, he is the consummate picture of greatness. Everything Joe touched turns to gold. It's not a stretch. He, he, success was like his shadow. Like everywhere he went, success follows. Even if you put him in slavery, even if you put him in prison, everything turns to gold. He just, it's like he can't not be successful. And if you went to that guy, Joe, as the imperial head of state, right? He's basically the guy who manages the empire. There, there's a figurehead, but he doesn't really do anything. Joe manages the empire. And he's clearly great. And if you go to Joe and you say, what's the greatest thing you've ever done? Well, according to the stories about Joe, he'd say, oh, without hesitation, the best thing I ever did is I forgave my brothers 
for selling me into slavery. I forgave my abusers. That's what I did. And I didn't just forgive them, but tell them to keep their distance. They moved in to a nearby neighborhood. We hang out regularly. We've been fully reconciled. You can read about that, Genesis 37 through 50. Later today, you can read about this scandalous story of a very powerful man named Joseph forgiving his abusers and saying, hey, let's resume life together as brothers. He'd say, that's the greatest thing. That's the best thing I ever did. That's the greatest thing. Now, if you ask Jesus, what is it going to cost for you to be fully reconciled to these sinners, these these people that you look at and cherish as your bride, what is it going to take? What's that cost? Jesus would say this. He would. If Jesus were physically here right now, he would, he would most emphatically and most sincerely say this. Like right before he died for his people, he instituted this meal. This isn't some like automated, superficial religious thing we do. We do this because God in the flesh, the most full and final manifestation of the radiance of God right before he paid for our souls with his blood, he said, what we have to do is we have to institute this meal because it visibly proclaims to y'all and it regularly reminds y'all of the greatest thing I ever did the thing that you fixate on, the thing that you resolve to know more than anything else, which is that I gave my life for you. And I had to. Some of the disciples thought, maybe you don't have to do that. They tried to talk him out of it. And he's, he got really aggressive with them when they tried to talk him out of it because he said, no, this has to happen. I don't, I don't get to be with my wife unless I do this. And I desire an eternal, inseparable relationship with my wife. And so I have to purchase her, I have to ransom her and redeem her with my blood. That's what it emphasizes in verse 20. Paul and Timothy, they allude to the cost of reconciliation. The only path, the exclusive path to forever peace with God is the blood of the cross. And again, let me remind you, the one who created everything, the one who upholds everything, the one for whom all things exist, This passage says he's the firstborn from the dead. Do you feel the staggering weight of such a statement? The one who upholds the universe died. In order for him to be the firstborn from the dead, he had to go into the humiliation and darkness of death. And we know it caused him a lot of anguish. He's praying right before this event. And and he's saying, if there's any other way, Show it to me, and there's no other way. And so he says, okay, Father, thy will be done. Because this is absolutely, exclusively the only way for us to be fully reconciled to God and to follow him, to trust him enough to say, I will follow you even into death because I believe in the resurrection. I believe that there is this life everlasting. This meal, according to the scriptures, comes with an invitation to examine ourselves comes with a warning as well. It says, if you really want to partake of this meal, before you do so, you need to ask yourself, do I really want this to be my paradigm of greatness? It's easy to read about it in the Bible and to underline some things and to maybe go to a Bible study and talk about how, wow, this is neat. This is really different how Jesus did it. But that's not the same as 
coming to this table and ingesting it and, and putting it in your body and saying, I want this to get inside of me. I want the way of Jesus, the greatness paradigm of Jesus to be my paradigm for greatness. This meal says you need to take heed of a warning if, if you're not sincere about this, right? If this is just an automated superficial thing, then you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. God wants your heart. Uh, he, he confronts very religious people in the gospels. He says, you can honor me with your lips, but if your hearts are far from me, I am not pleased. But, but if there is even an inkling of genuine faith in you, like a mustard seed's worth of genuine desire to get this paradigm of greatness inside of you, where, where you're pleading with God to be merciful with you, not just to forgive you, but to form you more and more into the image of greatness that we see on display in Jesus, then that means God is cultivating an appetite in you. And you should listen to it. You should come and you should partake joyfully of the sacrifice of Jesus because he loves you so much. And he wants to author and perfect and carry on all the way to completion this, this union that he has established, this reconciliation that he insists upon. And he wants to conform you more and more into his image because it's the way of life and joy. So let's pray and ask God to help us with that. Jesus, we first acknowledge that this is not what we would have come up with. In fact, even now, a lot of us here, we believe in you. We really do. We are like the dad in Mark chapter 9. We say, we do believe. We do. But we also must confess we have a lot of unbelief and we have a lot of remaining instincts to resist your way. And there are just so many moments in our own lives uh, where we are at best hesitant to follow you, the crucified king. So we're asking that you would overcome that, that you would deliver us from that evil of not trusting you and following you, that you would keep us from temptation and all of the entrapments and things in life that allure us and entice us away, that you would focus us on Jesus, not because it's duty, but because it is a delight. It is a delight to surrender our lives to such a savior as this. And we pray this in his name. Amen.